Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to talk about my first experiences playing with Phyrexia All Will Be One. So, for anyone who hasn't been following the previous episode, my friends and I uh, printed off and played uh, the set with a proxy cube. So the experience wasn't exactly the same as regular drafting. There weren't print runs. We did some collation, but it's going to be different. And I've also only done six player drafts so far. I've done five of those and I built a sealed. So I've seen some gameplay, but uh, you know, this set's still pretty new to me also, of course. In this episode, I'm going to go over uh, my impressions about how the set plays as a whole, um, kind of like the rules of engagement or terms of engagement, if you want to think about it that way. Um, just kind of focusing on uh, how the games play and what kinds of things matter and what decks look like and stuff like that. So a second overview episode is somewhat unusual, but uh, I felt like I want to give people kind of the best kind of overall understanding of the set before playing in a pre-release. And then I uh, can start uh, narrowing in on single archetypes once uh, people are more familiar with the set and I've had more experience there. So this is not going to focus on any particular archetype. It's going to be uh, more big picture. As always, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So let's, let's get into it. This is a uh, bomb heavy format. There are a lot of rares that are really hard to beat. There are like 10 planeswalkers and like only one of them is pretty bad and limited and many of them are very very good um and it really doesn't stop there the twilights are really good there are a bunch of, there are a couple of different uh green creatures that are like very big and very hard to kill i haven't studied the rares but the rares that i've run into just in the course of playing have been game ending with reasonable frequency so i'm not really a fan of like talking about and conceptualizing limited sets in terms of like a prince pauper distinction because i think it creates a false binary in this set both the rares and the commons are pushed so the impact of this is that the format as a whole really i want to say rewards proactive decks but what i really mean is punishes reactive decks unless your deck is exceptionally full of late game bombs you're going to lose to something. You're really, you know, stuck between, like, you need to answer the, like, early aggression and synergies from the linear proactive decks, and you need to answer the, like, late game bombs from the decks that are kind of drafted around having some of these really powerful rares that they opened. And it's not easy to thread that needle. Like, you can't just have, like, oh, I'm a control deck, I have some removal and some card draw, and that's going to get it done. Because that's just not going to beat like a lot of the different things that you can end up facing. It's very, very frequently the case that you should only really play control limited if you have like bombs that you're trying to draw to. And I think that that's even more true in this format and you need more bombs and they need to be more like bombier bombs. By default, you should be figuring out how the synergistic archetypes work and figuring out which one's open and which one goes with your like early uncommons and stuff. 
and drafting around that when a bomb doesn't tell you what to do. I actually think it's a really good thing for the format that there are strong bombs because the format's so linear and synergistic. I think that if the bombs weren't impressive, there's a really good chance that whichever linear synergy turns out to be the strongest, like once we see the stats on 17 lands, it would be best to just force that most of the time while the format, especially on Arena, takes a long time to catch up. But having these really strong bombs like does the thing that bombs do, where sometimes you open a bomb that's in a color that you don't generally prefer and it gets you to draft a different color. So I, I genuinely think that the rares in this set are going to be kind of necessary uh, for the set to have good replay value. Not that that super matters, you know, from a strategic perspective as a player, but as far as like the design of the set, I do think it's a good set to have strong rares and also that these linear synergies in the set give players the tools to cope with these rares by having a strong core game plan out of uh, the lower rarity cards. So I mentioned in my previous episode that my first look, the creatures looked pretty like good and aggressive and synergistic. And I was like, oh no, this is going to be like a really aggressive format. And then I noticed that there's a lot of good cheap removal and also card draw. And I was like, okay, well maybe those things are going to make it hard to attack. My experience has been that the pressure from the rares, in addition to just the strength of the synergies and the fact that the good removal is all pretty highly contested, like everyone wants those cards, means that the slow decks have not been impressive. The decks that have performed best are mostly the like fast linear decks, and when the other decks have done well, it's always been like, oh yeah, these bombs were really good. I drew them. That was awesome. So most versions of like, I'm trying to like stall without bombs have not performed well or seemed good to me. The fixing, it is plentiful. And because most decks are looking for the tight synergies that exist in two color pairs in this set, the fixing isn't a priority for most players. So it's not unusual. I think this will continue to be the case. It's not unusual for cards like Prophetic Prism to like go later than they would in some other sets. Meaning that if you do end up drafting like a controlling deck that's using rares, you can find the fixing to do it without too much trouble, which means that it's not all that uncommon to open a strong rare that's not necessarily in your colors, say in pack two, and you are encouraged and you do have the ability to find a way to get it into your deck and make it work. And I think for me, long-term, that's going to be part of what makes the format like fresh and fun is figuring out how do I pivot from this thing that I was doing to something that uses as many of the cards that I had before as possible while incorporating this new bomb that I opened. So that's kind of like the overall story of what's happening here as I see it at this point. I think going into your first experiences with the format in particular, it's really important that you understand 
what the two color archetype color pairs fundamentally are doing. This isn't like you don't need, you know, super in-depth understanding. Obviously, that helps. But you really need to know, like, even just what Wizards says about this is the intent with this color pair. You know, know that, like, blue-white is theoretically artifacts matter in some way, and white-black cares about corrupted. And just knowing those kind of, like, big basic bullet points helps you identify which commons you want and which commons you don't want. Because I think most monocolored commons are generally only good, like only are remotely desirable in about half of the decks of that color. So like half of the white commons that you see, once you know which color pair you're in in white, you won't want in your deck because they're for the other colors, not the color that you are. Incidentally, there are very, very, very few cards in this set that I think are unplayable or no one would ever want. There are a few, but the number's really, really low because they're just able to make narrow commons instead of like strictly bad commons because the, the archetypes are all doing really different things. Incidentally, in my notes for this show, I've made kind of a big chart of which color pairs every common, well, every colored common wants to be played in, in my opinion. Not all of them are cards I have experience with, but just like the text is such that it would make sense in this archetype and not the this archetype. There are a few where it's like, well, if it's good anywhere, it's good here, but it's probably not very good anywhere. And there are a few that are like, well, it's best in these decks, but it might be strong enough that you could play it everywhere. There, there's no way I can read off here's every color pair that every single common in the set wants to go into. But if you're interested, be sure uh, to check the notes that are posted to uh, limited guru and above patrons at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. If you want to just see how that breakdown is. The reason I did it uh, is because I wanted to see kind of big picture, which color pairs were not very supported versus were heavily supported at commons. And I did find something there. For example, blue-white is like theoretically about uh, artifacts. There are very, very, very few commons that feel like blue-white is the deck that they most want to go in. There are only three white commons. Mandible Justicar, the one in a white, two one lifelink artifact creature that gets plus one, plus one when an artifact enters the battlefield under your control. Gold Warden's Helm, the three mana equipment that gives plus O plus one and has four Mirrodin, which is better in red white than blue white, but at least is an artifact for blue white. I don't think it's especially great in blue white. And Orthodoxy Enforcer, which is also, I think, better in red white than blue white. The four mana, two, four vigilance that has plus two power if you have three artifacts. Those are like the only like real, like I'm not trying to poison you and I'm an artifact cards. Maybe you end up just needing to try to like get a little bit of poison on your opponent so that you can use Incisor Glider, the one in a white one, three flying artifact that gives your creatures plus one, plus one if they're corrupted. But like blue-white is not naturally good at getting corrupted, at least with artifacts. So maybe you end up like doing more stuff with like mites as your artifacts and like try to get them corrupted so that you can use incisor glider and going a little wide. 
Like you kind of have to do that because there just aren't very many other cards available. And then in blue, there are more cards for this deck than there are in white, but still fewer than there are for any other archetype. And the reason I thought to look into that was in the drafts that I've done, exactly one player has played blue-white. And I think that that was because they opened the blue-white blade splicer type card. And after we'd done a lot of drafts and we were like, we haven't seen blue-white. Like, I wonder what that looks like. And so it might have been a spot where, you know, people were like looking to try it. So blue-white in particular to me seems pretty unsupported and not like where I would want to be. Another one that was interesting is red-black, which I have drafted and liked There's an interesting thing going on there where very few of the black commons particularly want to be in that deck, and a lot of the red commons particularly want to be in that deck. So, like, the black-red deck seems like it's very likely to be, like, base red splash black, mostly because red isn't contributing any infect, toxic, or whatever. You're You're not poisoning people with your red cards. And a lot of the black cards are about poisoning people. But if you just say, well, I'm trying to damage someone. I'm not trying to poison them. I'm going to avoid the poison. I'm going to avoid the corrupted stuff. It leaves not very many black cards that you're interested in. But there are a lot of red cards that pair pretty well with black, even though there's like not that much black support. But I guess they play well with like the red and black uncommons and, you know, like red black is theoretically about like oil and sacrifice and red has a bunch of cards that kind of want to do that more than they want to do anything else. Red's in this weird spot where, you know, a lot of the sets about uh, poison and it really isn't. And so it ends up being, uh, you know, doing the equipment thing with white, the uh, oil and non spells with blue and then oil with black and red. Red is really focused on oil. And then the equipment stuff. The equipment stuff is also, I think, a little bit light on support. But, well, so red-white, <laughs> to talk about briefly, I think can support one good deck per table because a lot of the stuff in red-white really wants you to be, like, all in on it. Like, for example, the uncommon um, kind of white snapping drake equipment is four mana, four mirrodin, uh, gives the equipped creature plus one, plus zero, and all of your equipped creatures get flying. So if you curve out just equipment and then play that, then all of your stuff is flying and it's awesome. But if you don't have very much equipment, it's nothing special. Oh, I have it backwards. The equipped creature has flying and all the other creatures have plus one power. Okay, apparently I have that backwards. It's not quite as explosive, but it's still... It, it, pumping your whole team is good. It, it does want you to be all the way there. Sorry about that uh, mistake there. Red-white has kind of a a number of cards that are like, I really want you to have a lot of equipment, please do. And there just isn't that much. But most other decks don't really want it. And if you can get all of it, I think the deck is pretty good. But if you're fighting over it, I think that you just kind of run out of cards and you don't get to hit the critical mass that makes your stuff work. Blue has felt... Basically, I talked about how... I think you want to be really proactive and end the game. And blue has not been good at doing that. The most aggressive looking blue card to me kind of was the uh, two mana one three that gets oil whenever you cast a non-creature. And 
Then it has four oil counters, gets plus two, plus O, oh, and is unblockable. Icarus Synthesizer. That card has been pretty clunky to turn on in my experience. Blue in general is quite slow and defensive. It does have good card selection, and so I think that it plays pretty well with rares, right? Like if you have some bombs that you're looking for, blue can really help you find that. You have like common one mana zero three uh, that can scry three times, um, like it has three oil and you can tap it and remove an oil to scry. It's not hard to get more oil on it for additional scries. That can help dig for your bombs. And then you have uh, the Anticipate Proliferate card um, that can help dig for your bombs. And you have like a decent number of ways to like block and prolong the game. So if you have like bombs, then uh, blue is a pretty good way to kind of like play support and help dig for them in a like control shell. But it's hasn't been easy to put together blue aggressive decks in a format where I feel like you mostly want to be aggressive. So I personally would not be looking to draft blue uh, unless you're pushed there by good cards early. I have been impressed with oil and I have found the like white toxic plan to be pretty strong. I think that you're, you know, the the cards that you're looking for for Toxic versus the cards that you're looking for for Oil have very, very little overlap. It's kind of a, you know, like typical, like it feels appropriate for Scars of Mirrodin where, you know, the last set in New Phyrexia was like split into like Mirrodin, Pure, and Phyrexia, or maybe, the, maybe that was... Anyway, it has been the case before in this uh, plane that half of the set was like the Mirrodin stuff and half of it was the Phyrexia stuff. And there was, you know, like you were kind of choose a side sort of thing going on. And here, while it's all Phyrexia, it's still kind of split between, I guess, oil feels a little bit Mirrodin-y compared to like the Phyrexia toxic stuff. Anyway, regardless of like the flavor and historical connection and stuff, the point is... Uh, there is that kind of bifurcation happening across most of the colors, and you kind of need to choose a lane. Let's see, other th points. Combat tricks. It's notable that the aggressive decks are largely toxic. Specifically, what's notable about that is when you think about keywords that support aggressive decks, often those aggressive decks are, those keywords are like evasion, like cards that make blocking harder or less likely. And toxic makes blocking more likely because it's, you can think of it as kind of like provoke light where it's like a saboteur mechanic. It does something extra when you connect with the player that it doesn't do when you connect with a creature. And so the creatures have like reverse evasion, right? Like they're a little bit understated because they do something extra if they connect. And so that puts the format in this weird spot where it's an aggressive format where blocking is kind of naturally good. The, the most aggressive creatures, if you see Toxic as being very aggressive, which it is because it only does something if it hits a player, meaning that if you're bothering to play with a card with that word on it, you want to accomplish that goal that it gives you, meaning you're trying to hit the player, meaning you're trying to attack. So you're trying to attack with these creatures that are a little bit understated to get this word that your opponent wants to block. So what that means is that it's a blocking heavy format. 
it's more likely that your creatures are going to get blocked than it is in other formats, especially other aggressive formats that are about attacking. Meaning combat tricks are good, and specifically combat tricks that engage in creature combat favorably are good rather than combat tricks that engage in uh, player combat. Meaning that uh, a card like uh, Blazing Crescendo that gives plus three plus one is not as good as it would be in another format because the aggro decks are less likely to care about being able to use that kind of as a burn spell for three extra damage. And it's not as good at winning combat as some other tricks could be. Now, a little bit different with Blazing Crescendo specifically because it's in red, which isn't really about poison. Also, it's a great card because of the built-in card advantage. But uh, a better example might be Tyvar's Stand. Tyvar's Stand is an incredible card. That's X green, uh, target creature gets hexproof, indestructible, and plus X plus X until end of turn. So that card... The Howl from Beyond mode, where you just treat it like a fireball and like you have an unblocked creature and you just do X damage to your opponent, is less likely to matter because green is often going to be toxic and you're often trying to kill your opponent with poison counters rather than with damage. So you're not going to be in a spot where that like X damage is lethal or something. So still a great card, but less directly supportive of uh, other aggressive decks than it would be in another format. Whereas a card like Offer Immortality, uh, one in a black target creature gets uh, Death Touch and Indestructible, is better than it would be in other formats because it's easier to get into creature combat and it wins all the creature combats. So you can attack with your, you know, 2-2 two, two, Toxic 1 and your opponent might have like a large creature and they're going to be like, well, clearly this is a combat trick. But I also don't want to get hit by this thing. Maybe it would be my third poison and I'd be corrupted and that would be pretty bad. So I guess I have to like block and see what you have. And then you have this thing that kills whatever they have and saves your creature. Basically, numbers granted that are like power granted is a little bit less important. Um, And uh, toughness and keywords that win creature combat is a little bit more important. And also tricks are good. There's a lot of creature combat. This is to say this is a combat heavy trick heavy format because it's you know aggressive but blocking heavy which in my opinion has led to some pretty good gameplay um as much as i think that this format is like linear and bomby i think the games play pretty well there uh the games are often short but there are like pretty interesting decisions happening in terms of like navigating these combats and combat tricks and figuring out, you know, when to like make a sacrifice to push some extra poison to get your opponent into corrupted range, meaning they have three poison counters and some of your cards have additional effects because of that, or to get your opponent to the point where you might be able to proliferate uh, a few times and kill them. So I, I do think that the uh, the format plays pretty well, um, though it does have strong incentives in terms of the direction that is pushing you and the kind of games to play. I think that covers it. So I'm going to turn it over to chat. If you have any questions that I haven't covered, regardless of whether you've uh, asked them before, please enter them again now so I know everything I need to touch on. While you're doing that, I want to thank the newest patrons of the podcast, Chris and Mitch. Thank you very much for your support. For anyone else who's interested in supporting the podcast, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. And also, again, the notes here do have that breakdown 
of kind of the archetypes that I see all the comments fitting into. If that's something that's interesting to you, join the Patreon, the Patreon now. It's not too late to get access to that. And, you know, all the other notes in the past and future, all the other benefits you can find at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All right. So questions. Did Black's removal spell similar to Fatal Push feel playable in all colors? It's more like Smother. Anoint with Affliction. It's one in a black instant exile target creature with converted mana cost three or less. Uh, if they're corrupted, you can exile any creature. Uh, that card's fantastic. The set is, you know, highly synergistic and pretty aggressive. Uh, every deck wants to have a low curve because the early game is where you're fighting to figure out who, if anyone, is going to be corrupted. Just two mana, like just the smother part is a really, really good card. And it's not hard to have an opponent be corrupted to get the bigger payoff, but like I would still very highly prioritize that card in a black-red deck that has no ways to give my opponent any poison at all. Anoint with Affliction is definitely just a premium card no matter what. How impactful has Proliferate felt? Uh, how much do you feel the need to work to make it feel like a valuable addition to an otherwise unimpressive effect? So Proliferate's interesting in this format, right? There are only three total things you can proliferate. There are loyalty counters, which, you know, if you're proliferating on that, uh, you're probably in pretty good shape. Poison counters, and which you can only ever make one additional poison counter. There's only one opponent you're trying to uh, get poison onto. And counters. And as I mentioned, there's a pretty big divide um, between oil and toxic. I don't think there are any cards, at least not at common, that both have toxic and oil counters. Um, there, I can imagine uh, like blue-black and blue-green and black-green decks that both have uh, a significant amount of oil and are trying to poison the opponent, but often you're doing like one or the other. If you're trying to kill your opponent with poison and you don't have oil, Proliferate is not very impressive. It's one extra poison counter. That's not nothing, but it's, you know, nothing special. It's like, you know, kind of like do, do two extra damage or whatever. You know, in blue-black, you have some things that like independently trigger when you proliferate. It's, you know, it, it's felt fine. Um, it doesn't cost very much. And it's, I'd say, kind of like only okay overall. People talk about like, is this worth a card or whatever? Like, I would much rather draw a card than proliferate, of course, basically all the time. I'm not sure what else to say about it. Question. Aggressive set, yet we see a good amount of fixing available. How do these push and pull? Yeah, so I talked about that a little bit earlier. The fixing in this set goes, like, there is plenty of it. You can fix if you want. In my experience is that the fixing is taken pretty late because most decks are trying to be two-color and don't care about it. But uh, it's a way to incorporate bombs that you open that aren't in your color. And um, sometimes you can end up getting pulled into a lot of different spaces. And sometimes, like, it's early in the draft and nothing's putting you in any particular direction. And so you're like, well, there are these cards that, like, I might play if I go this way, but they don't seem great. So I'll just take fixing instead. And then I'm, like, in a spot to take advantage of, like, powerful rares that I open later. And I just hope I'll see some of those. You know, I, I have seen successful decks that are more than two colors, but it's dangerous to have a lot of them because it means that your deck is more likely to be unfocused and uh, you're more likely to fall behind in a format that's really punishing for that. How confident am I that these first, rep first experiences uh, are representative for the format? 
So they're backed by like studying the set and kind of like thinking about the incentives. And my experiences largely kind of match what I considered as a reasonable like range that the set could fall in my like predictions. I definitely think that there are a lot of things I don't know, like the relative strength precisely of the different linear archetypes. I'm trying not to uh, say too much about stuff I don't know about. Uh, I would say I'm reasonably confident about the direction of most of the things I'm saying, and I'm trying not to be too precise in terms of the magnitude of the impact of the stuff that I'm saying. Like, you know, I think combat tricks are going to play relatively well in this format because the format does mechanically encourage blocking. Does that mean the combat tricks are going to be the best cards or something like that? Not necessarily. So pretty confident as long as everything I'm saying is taken as not very precise. Uh, so I guess I, I would say low precision, high accuracy is what I'm going for. And I'm reasonably confident in that. Any notes for sealed specifically? So I have, I, I only built a single sealed pool and it, didn't feel like a very powerful pool so i built just kind of like green white aggro and it seemed fine i do think that in the sealed format in particular you know like sealed is more bomb heavy and more removal heavy and the bombs in this format are very very bomby and so i think that the way that bombs push you to be proactive if you don't have them is magnified in sealed. And so I do think that if you don't have an enormous, like people sometimes talk about like, if your sealed pool is weak, just try to build something fast. And I think often that's a little bit overstated and you should still just kind of play the best cards you can. I think that's less likely to be true in this format. It's more true that you should just try to build something like fast and linear and synergistic if you don't have bombs than it is in other sets, because I do think that, I mean, the linear stuff is how you end up, like most of like the gold uncommons, like there are a lot of powerful incentives to be really linear. And so like, if you don't have bombs, the way to use most of your best cards is gonna be to do something like proactive and linear. So I think that that's what you wanna do. Uh, and then like basically by default, build something proactive and linear, but as a higher priority, if you have any busted rares, use them. Um, would be my like big picture approach to sealed. What kind of stuff punishes the aura-based removal in blue and white? The most common big punishment, I would say, is indoctrination assistant, which is the uh, four mana, three, four, toxic one ETB. You can return another permanent you control to, your, to its owner's hand to make a might. That card is, you know, a pretty big punish for those things since it you know, wants you to pick up a card anyway, and then picking up the card invalidates that removal. Outside of that, there's like uh, Annihilating Glare, which is the um, black kind of like Bone Splinter-Z card. You can either sacrifice a creature or artifact or spend four extra mana to cast it to destroy a creature, I think, or a Planeswalker. And then at Uncommon, there's another, there's a four mana white Uncommon that can flicker something and also get something back from the graveyard. That also is a pretty big punish. Those are the primary things that explicitly punish aura-based removal in a set. How many occurrences of poisoned death? 
I didn't count, but like the decks that were trying to do it when they won, they usually did it with it. Like you kind of know most of the time when you're building your deck, like if it's going to get a poison kill and when it's built to do that, it, it does it. Anyone try to splash splash with synergistic gold uncommons and fixing like two different uh, gold uncommons in the same deck that were like trying to work together. I tried to do some of that uh, usually like in the draft portion and often found that it wasn't worth like putting in my deck and deck building. Like I had a deck that I drafted as Teamer Oil. And then when I went to build it, I was like, oh, I should just be red green uh, with like a little bit of like a small black splash, I think. And like all these blue cards just kind of like slow my deck down. Like my first draft, I ended up like red black oil and took some fixing and never saw like a reason to want it. So it's not like I wasn't trying to like play multicolor or use fixing or something, but I just found that it was hard to find a reason to because the decks are so linear. It's my... Estimation of the games that will end by eight poison counters followed by two proliferates. I don't have the ability to estimate that with any confidence. How well the skull bombs performed. Uh, I love the black one. Like the fact that you can cycle it when there's not a creature in the graveyard is much better than the fact that it like costs an extra mana in advance somewhere. And also like in black red, there are a bunch of things that trigger when an artifact goes to the graveyard. So you get one of those triggers on top of your recover um, and the ability to cycle it. So I think like the black skull bombs are really, really good. The red skull bomb has been reasonably effective for me. I've played like oil decks and getting two extra oils, nice. And then like the green and white ones are both like solid aggressive cards. The skull bombs in general have felt good. Have the spear lands felt high or low? Um, how high or low would you take them? How many is too many, especially uh, in the more um, early tempo format? They felt very good. Uh, I mentioned that I think you want to like have a low curve. And so like having, you know, when your deck, when the cards in your deck don't cost very much mana, it's really easy to get to the point in limited where you just don't need the number of lands that you have. And you can't just like play 14 lands because you need, you know, enough lands to cast your spells and especially enough lands to meet your color requirements. But then like if your curve is low, you don't really want as many lands in the late game as you naturally end up having. So it's a set that's lent itself well to... Like, there aren't a ton of mana sinks. Like, the creatures mostly have text that's not... Like, there aren't a lot of activated abilities. Um, there are a few, but not a lot. And, like, there's some card selection that can kind of function as mana sinks, but mostly being able to, like, get rid of a land to find another spell has been quite good. It's certainly possible to have too many. There are huge diminishing returns on them, of course, since, you know, they take time to sacrifice and... Every additional land you sack makes it less likely that you're going to want to sacrifice another land. But I think, you know, basically every deck would like to have a couple of them. How did the cards that are just raw power on rate feel in two-color decks where they were a little off-plan or not as synergistic? So the uh, I think the kind of, like, flag-bearer, like, the, the, the best example of that card is, for me is Contagious Vorak, the two-and-a-green, three-three, it went under just the battlefield. You can look at the top four cards of your library, put a land from among them into your hand if you don't proliferate. That card is clearly great on rate. I've seen people like think about playing it in constructed, and you know, it would be a good card in any limited format. It's a common. It is a good card. But when I was playing a deck with three of them, uh, which 
was good. Uh, the deck performed well. Having three of them was good. But I really felt the fact that they didn't have any synergies. Um, you know, theoretically proliferates synergy, but really it's just like a little token benefit when you fail to do what you want, which is get a, an extra card off of it. And uh, like my deck was mostly about oil. And then I just had these cards that I had to play because they were really good, but they weren't like contributing to my like cards that are looking for oil. And um, then, you know, if you're playing, like a lot of the green decks are like trying to poison your opponent and they don't do that. Like, it's a good card that you should play, but it feels less good than it would in another format because it stands out as like not doing the thing that you're trying to do. So I think that, you know, like they're good and you should play them, but I guess it, I don't feel as bad about not having them as I might about like another premium common, I guess. Like, if you're playing uh, New Capenna and you're drafting white and you don't have any Inspiring Overseers, um, I think that's the name of the card, the 2-1 flyer that draws a card and gains life, you feel like, well, I was really unlucky not to see any of these. My deck is, like, worse than another white deck. Whereas, like, Contagious Vorak might be the generically best green common, but if you don't have it, you don't really feel like, oh, I really needed this thing. You're just more about doing whatever you're about doing. So, yeah, I don't know. It stood out to me that there was a cost, basically, to playing an off-plan card, which is kind of what I'm saying about just how linear everything is and how much you kind of want to make sure that every card you're taking works toward whatever your plan is to the best of your ability. Did you have a chance to play Incisor Glider? What was your opinion of it? How hard is it to activate Corrupted? I did play it. It's... You know, how hard it is really depends on... Like, you need to have a plan to activate it, right? I had a... My sealed deck was a green-white aggro deck with two of them. I had a lot of early corrupted creatures. Like, my whole deck was just, like, low-curve corrupted creatures. And uh, it was almost always on, and it was very good there. I played against some black-white decks that had it that uh, were a little bit slower. It was on a little bit less reliably, but... There aren't a ton of flyers in the format, and just being a 1-3 flyer was kind of like okay with other flyers, and usually it would get turned on at some point. I think it's, you know, like notably an awkward card for blue-white. I think blue-white theoretically wants a flying artifact creature, but has a lot of trouble getting the opponent corrupted, but I think it's, you know, one of the best commons in like green-white, for example. I didn't play with or against the Eternal Wanderer. Someone had it in one of my drafts. I didn't play against it. I, it, you know, there, there's nothing sneaky about it. It's a very strong card. Is this format Ixalan with bombs? Ixalan had bombs and no. In Ixalan, none of the cards had text or did anything. In this set, all of the cards have text and do things. The, like... Even when the text is just toxic, which is pretty simple, it does meaningfully inform, uh, like, combat and attacks and stuff. And the, like, oil cards have, like, a lot of different synergies and activated abilities, and it's really about as far as possible from Ixalan. Noob said this set is proactive slash tempo-based. Will this affect how you mulligan? Are you just dead if you don't have a turn one or two play i mean it's still limited and you can still only afford the mulligan about as much as you can afford mulligan and limited and you know how likely your deck is to have a turn one or two play and 
while it is proactive, I don't know that it's like super fast. Like, I don't know that games end. It's not like the games are ending on turn five or something. And it's also not like you just automatically lose the game against a corrupted deck when you become corrupted. So I don't think that you mulligan all that differently. What does it mean to be proactive in this format? So first of all, to have a plan. You want your cards to, like, you want to understand how your cards work together and what objective they're, like, working toward. And second, you really want that plan to be how you're going to kill your opponents. Like, you do basically want to attack. It's, you know, there are different ways to do that in terms of, like, going, like, evasion versus like big creatures versus low curve, like all all of those are like different kinds of proactive strategies and they're all viable. But, you know, a reactive strategy would be the opposite of a proactive strategy. And that would be, I'm just going to try to like answer everything my opponent does. That's not what you want. You want, I'm going to try to do this instead of I'm going to try to stop this. Incidentally, I've had some thoughts about how this can kind of be divided into what do you think magic is about? Is it about efficient card exchanges, um, like trading a head on cards or a head on mana? Or is it about doing something that uh, combines your cards in a way that's greater than some of their parts to try to end a game? I think the latter is reactive and the former is proactive. And those are kind of like, that's just like a fundamental divide that exists in terms of like how cards and strategies are evaluated and long topic for another time. Um, but that's another way to think about it if you catch my meaning there. Since being on a play naturally favors attacking, do you think play draw might matter more in this set, similar to how uh, double team worked? Not as much as double team for sure. You know, there, there are like, there are plenty of aggressive limited sets. Being on the play is good. The fact that blocking like works and is good in this format, I think makes being on the draw not as bad. Were there any decks that killed approximately evenly on life and poison, or did it seem to be pretty segregated? That's so because the toxic creatures do damage in addition to giving poison counters, it's not like the uh infect decks where if your creatures had infect, you were like never killing with damage. I think if your deck is about poisoning your opponent some portion of the time you're going to kill with damage because it's unlikely that actual all of your creatures have toxic and your toxic creatures are going to like do both damage and get them like poisoned and then sometimes you know the creature that ends up being left alive doesn't have toxic and you finish your opponent off that way so i, I do think that like especially green white can end up killing either way pretty often is one poison counter effectively two damage no very much not specifically because the poison counters are doing damage like the creatures that give poison counters are doing damage at the same time and if this was just extra damage then they would be like getting you know killed on damage really quickly unfortunately there's not like a direct translation there it makes it kind of hard to evaluate some things like how do you feel about like three one toxic two and how do you feel about one three toxic one and how much damage they're outputting and how much is like the poison worth as a function of like how many other poison cards do you have and stuff and it's it's complicated and you can't just like 
say a damage is worth this much poison or anything. You just need to figure out how these outputs contribute to your game plan. All right, I think we're reaching the point where questions are either too specific for me to have enough experience to answer or too close to things I've already talked about. So I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks very much, everyone, for hanging out, tuning in, asking questions. And hopefully uh, this gives you everything you need to know to feel confident going into your pre-release this weekend. That's going to be it for me for this week. As I implied, uh, next week we'll be getting into uh, specific archetypes. I don't know where I'll be starting, and I'm going to assume that I'm not going to be ready to open it up to a pull for the first week. I am going to be playing the set a lot. I've already started playing it. I'm going to be playing tournaments with it early. So I do hope that I can have uh, the second archetype that I discuss uh, up for a uh, poll for patrons. The first one is going to be whatever I feel most uh, interested and comfortable talking about. So, all right, that, that's, that's really it. Bye for now. Yeah.